One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh, I'm the I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Okay, I want you to imagine for a second that you're playing for a top Premier League team. You're in sixth place in the table. Not great, it's been a tough season, but you still have a shot at Champions League qualification and you're playing at home against the side in fourth place. That's the final Champions League spot. You can see the goal early on but roar back to equalise just before half-time. What are you expecting there, Ken, celebrations-wise? I'm expecting running into the net, grabbing the ball, running back to halfway, planting the ball down the centre circle with a defiant expression. Defiant, yeah, defiant. And even a bit of, you know, delirious. Maybe maybe an angry celebration. Just certainly one full of passion, brim full of passion. Oh, yeah. Well, that didn't seem to happen in the case of the first Arsenal equaliser in particular yesterday. I couldn't help but notice... The Arsenal players now seem to be celebrating equalising goals as though they're consolation goals at the end of another heavy defeat. I did notice. Uh, yeah, well, particularly the first one. Koscielny would be the main culprit. He seemed to walk back towards the centre circle with a hangdog expression. Maybe he was already thinking, face. I'm going to have to come off. Yeah, it c- could have been that. Yeah. Um, it could have also been that it was a strange kind of a scruffy goal. Maybe if it had been a 20-yard screamer by Theo Walcott, it might have been a little bit differently. But I've decided to consult my favourite body language expert again, <laughs> Patty Wood. Who? <laughs> start, I don't know if you remember. I consulted Patty before. Uh, cons- Owen's consul- consultations with Patty Wood. Online consultations here, and she. I last dipped into her work in late 2015 when Jose Aldo was sparked out by Conor McGregor in 13 <laughs> seconds. I, was, I didn't fancy how Aldo looked uh, before walking to the octagon that time. So Patty Wood, I, I'll just remind you, uh, as if anyone's forgotten this. She styles herself as the gold standard in this particular field. Patty Wood is the Babe Ruth of body language experts, the gold standard of body language experts, the capo du, di tutti capi of body language experts. Okay. According to, Says I think it was blurb on her website? Blurb, blurb by, uh, I think it was the Washington Post or somebody. Mm. Anyway, one of the central tenets of her advice is the phrase, be up. And this is one I think that applies to Arsenal. Build confidence by moving and holding your body up. If you follow me, you know that I've created this label, up, to describe all upward posture and movements and facial expressions. So uh, hold your head up gesture up, basically everything up. When we are happy, our body naturally moves and holds itself up. When you hold or move your body the way you would like to feel, the posture actually sends a message to the brain. Hey, I'm feeling great, positive, and... Up. Up. As you hold your body, the little pharmacy in your brain starts producing the chemicals that match that state and pumps them into your body as you begin to feel... High. Up. Oh, up. <laughs> I'm actually pointing up there for Ken to give yeah. me a bit of feedback on this. The combination of your up posture and movement and movement up and your chemical upstate is felt by the interviewer. Okay, this advice is based on wow, job this is interviews and so such on. clever advice. They start to give you attentive non-verbal cues and that makes you feel more confident. I call this the fake it till you make it technique. I call this fake it till you make it. <laughs> Brilliant. You only have to fake it for a fraction of a second before it actually affects how you feel. So Arsenal, be up, fake it till you make it, celebrate goals wild, wildly and do not drop not, No move, no little dickheads, chat shit. <laughs> that is, that's incredible advice. I mean, imagine... People eating that stuff up. <laughs> and, you know, the, I suppose he, just the, the more you stand in an erect posture 
with your head up, the better you feel. And it just continues like that forever. The head it up, never wears off. The ge- up, upward gestures, put the fingers up, all that kind of it's stuff. Just fingers con- in the air. A constant upward curve. As long as you keep standing as ramrod straight as you <laughs> possibly can, you just keep feeling better and better and better. Forever. Yeah. That's all you need to do. Never, I slump quite badly, actually, yeah. Yeah. You might notice even in my sitting positions, I tend to hunch down a little bit, so I've got it all wrong. I just haven't been in, in touch with my patty wooden feet for quite a long time. Yeah, well, our arsenal maybe, maybe ought, to, ought to stand up a little bit. I mean, they did, they did stand up and fight back a couple of times against Manchester City uh, yesterday, which I wasn't expecting them to do. Mm. Yeah, I mean, is it a good result, though? Is it even a good result for Arsenal? You know, it wasn't much use... A draw at this stage of the season, albeit against Man City, you know, it's still just one point from a game. They're kind of a few points off now. On the other hand, Arsene Wenger is going to be, you know, the team fights back and shows its character against Manchester City. I mean, what more do you people really expect? I don't even know if it's that good a result. We passed the mental test, I think is what he said. We have an email in here from Robin Sherry Woods, editor at secondcaptains.com. Hi, guys. The most recent non-sport podcast that Ken recorded was, to put it bluntly, fucking mental. I made the mistake of trying to listen to it when trying to fall asleep and failed miserably due to the thoughts of our imminent demise. So thanks for that. In all seriousness, though, great pod. Keep them coming. Cheers from Robin. He's referring, of course, Ken, to your chat with Mark O'Connell in the World Service last Friday about his book on transhumanism. Yes. The belief that... To be a machine. Technological advancements will eventually do away with the minor inconveniences of life, such as death. Well, death, yeah. Yeah, um, we can sort of become. Well, there's a few ways you can do it, Owen. Freeze yourself and reanimate. Combine yourself with a machine. Upload yourself to I don't know your phone or whatever. <laughs> um, there's a ton of different ways you can do it, but uh, yeah, it's all in Friday's show. It is. It's a fascinating interview. I, I know I felt disturbed and compelled in equal measure when I listened to it, and I'm sure it made anyone who heard it reconsider profound questions of life and death and so much more, which is why it pains me to have to inform you right now that I've been pouring over the social media analytics as I like to do, Ken, and they leave little room for doubt about the story that had the biggest impact during last week's shows. Atlantic City Sweathogs, New York Nitwits. Yes, of course, it was the posthumous induction of Ravishing Rick Rude into the WWE Hall of Fame on WrestleMania weekend. The gloss was taken off that one by the sad news of The Undertaker's defeat to Roman Reigns last night. You know, they're saying, Ken, it could be the last we see of The Undertaker in the squared circle. At 52 years of age, the dead man waved goodbye to the crowd before disappearing through an opening in the floor of the ramp that descended from the stage, according to a report I read. So rest in peace, Undertaker. Well, at least The Undertaker is still alive. Well, he's never really been alive, though. Yeah, well, at least he's uh, he's still on the go anyway. He's on the go, yeah. He's not alive, but he's on the go. I mean, Unlike a lot of the former wrestlers. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, um, perished power to a lot younger than their, their 50s. Uh, if you want your sleep patterns destroyed by more of Ken's disturbing interviews, you can sign up to the World Service and secondcaptains.com for all of our daily shows. Tony Barrett's going to be on today to talk about the Merseyside Derby. And we're also going to chat about David Moyes, who's in a heap of trouble after threatening to slap a female reporter. Is that what he did? That's the, the headline. I don't know what exactly he thought he was trying to do here. But anyway, we'll get to that a little bit later on. It's reporting some sport. Well, I guess we might as well hear what, what David Moyes has said. Will we hear? This is at the end of an interview. He's, he's speaking to Vicky Sparks of the BBC. And um, after the interview, this is this happens. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Nice to see you. Just getting a wee bit naughty at the end there. <laughs> so just watch yourself. And you, might get a, looking, you still might get a slap even though you're a woman. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Oh dear, Moisey, Moisey. So I mean, you can. I mean, what do you What do you think of that exchange, Owen? I mean, it's uh, well, it's a difficult one to to analyze. I know a lot of the most I mean, interesting, the, the most revealing insights into a lot of these managers seem to take place just directly after interviews have finished. Yeah, I remember David Moyes. Uh, David Moyes, my his. Um, Predecessor at Manchester United, Ken, Alex Ferguson, yes. having that go at Motti that time, wasn't it? What was that over? Oh, he had a go at everyone. But yeah, but it was this really, it, it was one of these little moments that just told you how he deals with people well, who he feels are well done, not Jeff. on his side. Well done, Jeff, was, his, was <laughs> yeah. Fergie's classic, <laughs> classic line. Uh, well done, Jeff. I'm not saying that this is how Moyes treats people or treats women. I don't know uh, anything well, Mo- uh, Moyes about, is... about David Moyes' actual views on, on any of this stuff. But it just is it's, it's completely bonkers. It is. But Mo- Moyes is trying to make a joke there. 
I mean, you can hear he's saying it, haha, and she, and uh, Vicky Sparks is laughing also, albeit possibly a bit nervously, haha. Uh, I mean, how could you not laugh if that situation was to happen to you in real time? It would be almost impossible not to laugh with the combination of uh, nerves, um, inappropriateness, uh, and I don't know, maybe politeness, wanting to sort of save David Moyes' blushes. I mean, this is a. It's 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 really hard to know what to do. Like I see, for instance, um, Henry Winter uh, of the Times, uh, a booming, uh, a booming establishment voice says, mm-hmm. "Got a lot of time for David Moyes," and you're thinking, "Oh no, this one's going to go badly for David Moyes." But his comments to a female interviewer are unforgivable. <laughs> are they unforgivable? Um, it's yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be too. I wouldn't be so sure about that. Although. You know, it, it obviously depends on Vicky Sparks, really, what she thinks of it, I think, more than anything else. I mean, you know, Moyes, I've, I've seen Moyes before in, you know, in sort of the, the press room, certainly when he was manager of Everton anyway, and seeing how he kind of handles it. And he's quite, he could, at that time anyway, at Everton, remember, he was kind of a strong man manager. He wasn't like the David Moyes there is now, who's kind of this damaged figure. I mean, damaged, professionally damaged by, you know, a, the awful experience at Manchester United, you know, another not great experience at Real Sociedad, and now here he is at Sunderland, and his standing in the game has diminished, whereas at Everton he was, you know, he'd been there for 10 years, dominated that whole area. You know, he, he this baleful stare of Moyes, he'd go in there and the journalists would sort of sit around, and I, mean, I remember seeing him a couple of times when Everton had lost, you know, they'd lost to Stoke at home one time, they lost to, the, or they... I think Drew at Liverpool that time when Suarez had dived at his feet that game. And his attitude was just real. It was He had this cold, murderous stare. and Like like Alex Ferguson at Man United. A little bit, like a little, a little, less, maybe a bit more wooden. In that, more of a wooden, cold, murderous a, a, stare. A bit more non-verbal as well, he's, maybe. He's challenging you to, he, he's kind of, he's not making it easy for you. As a journalist, you know what I mean. He's not. He's not sort of encouraging you to answer. They all do this to an, to an extent. I mean, he's, Alan Pardew yeah. would be another one. You he's know, staying up presumably as well in his posture. He's right up there. Paddy St- Wood would be happy. He's staying up, but I but I always remember in the tiniest chair I've ever seen a grown man sit in, like literally a play school chair. Why Why do Everton for some reason? Why are they putting the managers in a in a tiny little chair that a three-year-old would sit on in in front of a little fold-up table? This might explain why Ronald Koeman's in such bad form all the time. Um, well, Ronald Koeman, yeah. Well, <laughs> we're, don't worry. We're, we're going to get we're, we're, we're going to get to Ronald Koeman. But yeah, he 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 was, I suppose, up. Uh, although his his legs were also sort of folded up because of the tiny nature of the chair that he was sitting. But what I'm saying is that it's normal for managers to sort of be challenging or or kind of challenge reporters to ask them, as Moyes referred to their naughty questions, like questions the manager doesn't like, like why is your team so awful? Why do your players not seem to be playing for you? You know, those kinds of questions managers don't like. So when, you know, he... Obviously, there have been a couple of... I haven't heard the actual interview in question, but Moy says, oh, those... It was getting a bit naughty at the end there. Oh, you might get a slap the next time you... Clearly... Clearly, Moyes is not going to give it... I mean, I'm I'm unaware of David Moyes ever giving anyone a slap, any, any journalist. And I'm sure, you know, there have been occasions when he's almost looked as though he was going to. You know what I mean? He, part of his thing would be, oh, you know, you don't come into my press room and start acting up. But like, you know, it's not something that he means, but it's obviously something that he shouldn't say. Do you think in some ways in his own head, he's thinking, if this was a male reporter, I'd be telling him that in, in a, even if it's in a somewhat joking way that, oh, be careful or you'll get a slap. So I've got to treat this I've female reporter in, a, in a, yeah. an even handed manner and show show that I care about equality in football. So I will also say, it's just I think, I think, I think, in a twisted way that yes, mm. that is. I think honestly, it is something along those lines. Even though you're a, even though you're a woman reporter or a female, <laughs> like don't. Oh no, David, no. We'll talk. We'll talk to David Priest about that uh, a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, how this is going to go for Moyes, I, I honestly don't know. I could see him losing his job over this quite easily. Well, this and the combined fact that Sunderland at the bottom of the table, you know, things haven't exactly been going great. It's not like the wildly popular David Moyes has apologised for, 
you know, an unfortunate comment that he made. Yeah, if you're looking for an excuse to get rid of a manager. If, if you're looking for an excuse, then, here, you know, here's here's one. Um, but, I, you know, unforgivable, I, I do feel, is a bit is a bit harsh. I mean, I know that everybody wants to, you know, the, you know, no, the, the issue of, of male violence against women is one of the least funny things in the world. You know, you could argue this is not a laughing matter. It's never a laughing matter. Uh, in this instance, though, I think it's an inappropriate joke rather than, you know, a sacking offence. Will we talk Koeman now? Yes. Um, I mean, Ronald Koeman and Martin O'Neill. I mean, what, what was going on on Friday? This is, this is ridiculous. Martin O'Neill puts out a statement. I mean, Koeman, first of all, had brought along his, his reading glasses. His press conferences are never a good sign. Puts on the glasses and to, to read out a statement about how Martin O'Neill isn't protecting James McCarthy, O'Neill hits back, calling O'Neill the master tactician of the blame game. I was just wondering how Martin O'Neill would react if someone was to say something like that about him. Mm. Honestly, I swear, like, if you wrote that about Martin O'Neill, you would be, I'm pretty sure you'd be hearing about it. You know what I mean? Like, he would not let that go. Anyway, Ronald Koeman didn't let it go uh, and had a pop back, oh, from the master tactician. I mean, he seemed, he was then accusing, I mean, this is where Sky came in and started stirring up the pot. After the game, Ronald Koeman's lost 3-1 to Liverpool. Um, a disappointing performance by Everton, but an injury weekend team. Injured James Coleman, injured James McCarthy. Um, you know, it wasn't a great situation for Everton to be in. After the game, they, they start stirring it up a bit. Oh, First of all, trying to get Koeman to say something bitchy about Klopp and his staff, which he obliges with, and then <laughs> so they've stored that away. They're gonna they're gonna say that to Klopp later and hope that he'll <laughs> fire back and a, a withering broadside. Yeah. But there also there's this thing with Martin O'Neill to be got to. So he referred to O'Neill's comments as a lot. It's just a matter for laughing. Uh, really unfair and really badly informed. Uh, James McCarthy had three week, three and a half weeks holidays, not eleven days. Of course, Martin O'Neill's statement didn't actually say that James McCarthy had eleven days holidays. He said that he played his first game 11 days after coming back to training after a short break. James had a magnificent tournament for the Republic of Ireland last summer during Euro 2016, playing his last game in very late June. He then returned to Everton after a very short break, but only 11 days later he played his first of three games, all within an eight-day period against Betis, Manchester United and Espanyol. Overloading, question? Yeah, so, so you got these two guys basically accusing each other of having overloaded James McCarthy more. I think they're actually both overloading James McCarthy. Um... Uh, and I think this is... I don't see what this squabble between them does for him. You know? Nothing, really. No, I mean, nothing it, positive. It puts, him in a really, it puts him in an awkward position. It puts him in a difficult position regarding both of his bosses, his, you know, his managers, uh, regarding the supporters at Everton. Um, I, I, I fail to see what's achieved by this. Why can't they do this in private? Why can't they call each other up and shout at each other on the phone or send each other bitchy texts? You know, why is this being shared with the... With the world, well, I think. Well, hasn't it been reported that Cumin has refused to engage in recent times with O'Neill? That O'Neill had a call put through to him, or he called himself a few months back and didn't hear anything back. So maybe that's the end of. Well, okay. I mean, it's, it's if if that's true, yeah, I think yeah. it's I think it's it's poor behaviour from Cumin, and he's the one who ends up looking stupid. But I don't think O'Neill necessarily looks great out of this either. No, not no, neither of them do. You know, it's just like two. Two silly men. Somebody on Twitter, I, I, I tweeted the statement on Friday night and somebody had said that it was a, a classy, this is the O'Neill statement, it was a classy, something like a classy and understated statement. Surely that was a joke though. Surely that person was joking. Because I mean, that, the, that only makes sense as a kind of, oh, real classy and understated statement there, Martin. You really are the master tech tactician of classy statements. The, the, I might have walked into one of the traps laid by <laughs> social media there and <laughs> taken that one at face value. But it certainly wasn't understated. It was... It was low on detail. Is the only thing uh, when I started reading, it, I thought this a is going to be break. this is going to be this is going to have like seven Chapter bullet verse, points, yeah, yeah and, and taking on each of Kuman's concerns or his accusations. But it didn't at all. There was very little to the statement, really, bar this incredibly snarky line about the master tactician of the blame game has, stru has struck out in his comments. Today. Amazing, uh, amazing, the master. Now I'm sure. Uh, well, I, I say I'm sure. I would I would guess that Martin O'Neill didn't personally type those words, but you know. For a, for a kind of quite snide comment like that to get in, I mean, surely he he must have approved the tone. You know what I mean? He, was he was he shown this before it went out? I mean, what I'm saying is, if you said that to Martin O'Neill or something like that, oh, the master tactician of the blame game, you know, has has blamed some other thing, he would rip your guts out for that.
He really would. Mm. It'd be, oh, two, two, I want two European Cups. You know, what have you won? You know, it'd be all, it'd be all that. And you'd have made a lifelong enemy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was, I was surprised, really surprised. Uh, and it seemed as though Koeman was, uh, you know, in his, in his sort of um, uh, taking ownership of that description from the master tactician as he signed off his speech, as though, in, to my mind, he had got the upper hand at that point. Unfortunately, he then went and lost 3-1 to Liverpool. And when you lose, it was basically Martin O'Neill 3, Ronald Koeman 1. Uh, Firmino and Coutinho. Uh, this is the interesting thing. Uh, we, there was a lot of stuff about how international duty is really bad for players. And obviously Everton really got uh, hurt badly by uh, what happened on the, with the uh, Ireland team last week. But sometimes... Sometimes it goes well. And Klopp actually said after the game, I just have to thank the Brazil national team for sending us back the two boys in a really good mood. <laughs> and it was the best game Coutinho has played since he got injured in December. Yeah, he was brilliant. Uh, for the last you know couple of months, it's been, where where is that guy gone? What's wrong with him since he, you know... Um, since he, since he uh, returned to so-called fitness. But he actually went away, scored for Brazil, played really well, and seems to come back for the Springer set. Maybe Neymar officially tapped him up on this trip. Who, who knows what happened? He's under contract anyway, <laughs> and uh, it remains to be seen what will happen in the summer. But, you know, it, that, that, that whole thing, though, did strike me. It was like a couple of questions about the games of Cumin. Then it was like, right, okay, what do you want to say about Klopp? Right, what do you want to say about Martin O'Neill stirring the fake news pot? Uh... Uh, and then they put it to Klopp as well, and he said, what, Ronald Koeman talked about me? Suddenly, the sort of cheery bonhomie of all his other answers was gone, and you could see like the, there was a genuine flash of rage, which Klopp managed to swallow by saying, okay, you know, he talked about me, well, why don't you say what you think about that? And then like walked off, because he, his attitude was kind of like, well... Why talk about me when his player, Barkley, has, has done this over-the-ball challenge? Barkley, you know. Again, as I said, we talked to Tony Barrett about the details of it. Well, Barkley, a couple of, to- a couple of bad ones. And what does Koeman say? Bearing in mind his, his player is, 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 has got a smashed leg because of this type of tackle. Well, that's football. It's a man's sport. You know? You want to get on top of Barkley there. Because this is, he's doing this a lot now. And it's Koeman's responsibility to to get that out of him, you know, because if he doesn't, there's going to be consequences for that. For Barkley, they're going to hurt Barkley, they're going to hurt Everton, and they're probably going to hurt whoever else he hurts, you know, in a more direct sense. But, you know, he did this in the, in the previous Merseyside derby. He, he had a two-footed, crazy two-footed t- tackle on Jordan Henderson, and seems to have learned nothing in the interim. Yeah, possibly getting a bit too hot. But I was interesting, uh, interested that uh, Lovren seemed as annoyed by the lack of contrition as he did by the foul itself. He sort of intimated afterwards that, and in your words, Koeman saying, oh, that's football. Lovren might be easier able to accept that, but in football, in the unwritten codes, <laughs> you would usually expect an apology maybe for a tackle like that, and then we can forget about it, but I don't, that didn't seem to happen. Yeah, I and mean, Lovren was like, if, you, if I show you my leg, it'll be, you'll be like, it will be headlines if I show you my leg. Uh, it was a tough challenge. He didn't apologise. That's the only thing I don't like. If you make a hard challenge, then be open about it. Say sorry. Don't talk to the referee and say it wasn't a foul. Um, so that was that. Yep. Um, so where are we now? Oh, the other... Th- okay. So we, we mentioned TV companies maybe trying to generate a bit of fake news by, you know, uh, sort of trying to breathe life into uh, these arguments between managers, trying to keep them going artificially, by artificial means. Um, but sometimes... It's the manager who's trying to make a little bit of fake news. Can we roll the tape there, Tony? We saw you smiling with Tony Pulis at the end. Did you cancel each other out today? I don't know what you mean. What do you mean by that? Two teams very evenly balanced today. You think so? Well, I'm asking you. You think so, really? You think that's a question? I'm asking because you were smiling with him at the end. Was it an acknowledgement no, that I'm you'd balanced each other out? I'm smiling because he's my friend. No, I was not... Speaking about the game, do you think the game was was like no, that? I, I was asking because you were smiling with him. I can smile if I lose, if I win, if yes. I draw. There's nothing to do. You are asking a question about the game. Do you think the game was like you are saying? No, that's not what I said. I, di- I didn't say what I think. I'm asking you what you think. I'm sorry. I, I don't, that's just what I'm asking. I'm sorry to say, but it's a silly question. <laughs> Jesus. 
That's uh, Jose Mourinho. Was it that silly a question? I say as post-match questions go, that was that seemed okay. No, it wasn't a silly question. I mean, it was a, it was a quite a standard opening question. I mean, the game finished zero zero, so you could there's a reasonable argument there that the sides cancelled each other out. It's, it's something that's often said after a nil all draw. Um, but <laughs> uh, Jose Mourinho was having none of that and blindsided Conor McNamara, the BBC reporter there, with some in my opinion, quite obnoxious behaviour. You're not really prepared for that, I guess, when you're in, in Connor's position. No, I thought, I, thought he fought, I thought he fought it pretty well for the most part. Tried to, just kept repeating that yeah. I'm asking you this question. Uh, but it's obviously a bit unnerving when you're getting I mean, after stared the game, down by Jose Mourinho, I suppose. Yeah, and, and, and you're obviously, you're not expecting Jose Mourinho to suddenly make an issue of, oh, you've asked me a stupid question. You think that's a question? You, you're sort of, you're not really expecting it. Maybe you'll expect it the next time. Uh, I mean, I guess if after the game you've got to make your way down to the flash zone and wait there for Jose Mourinho to to roll by to do the interview, maybe you don't get a chance to look um, uh, and see all the statistics going around on social media about how Manchester United now have their worst home record of the Premier League era. I mean, that would have been an interesting one to put to Jose. Your win rate of 40% is, is uh, lower than it's been in any season since... Ooh, was it 1973-74 or am I misremembering? That's the season Manchester United got relegated anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, so things aren't really too good. I was watching this game, uh, Owen, uh, uh, and it was, it was a poor performance. It was a poor performance for Manchester United. It was the type we've seen a lot uh, where they, oh, but look at the shots, 18 shots, three shots on target, very few, no no clear chances. West Brom are going to, West Brom, Tony Peelis is West Brom, you know how they're going to play. They're going to be compact, let's say. They're going to be compact. So that's going to be the challenge for you and see if you can, um, see if you can break it down. Uh, they didn't break it down. And afterwards, Jose Mourinho uh, knew exactly why that was. And this is in his press conference. And I honestly think this is extraordinary. I think what you're, what you're about to hear now is is really extraordinary. See if you agree with me. In in some other clubs, in some 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 teams where uh, you play, you know, for top ten, you play a player with talent is always welcome, even if that talent is uh, is not consistent, even if that that talent is uh, one day yes, one day no. In these teams at this level, you need to be consistent. And um, today, for 90 minutes, Valencia was consistent, Ashley Young was consistent, Marcos Rojo was consistent, Bi was consistent, Fellaini was consistent, Karik was consistent, and the other ones were not consistent. The other ones were... Uh, uh, a flash of talent, a glimpse of talent, one good action, uh, almost goal, and we need to kill opponents. And this is déjà vu all season. Déjà vu all season. Déjà vu all season. No, déjà vu from from last season is what that was. Jose Mourinho pointing the finger at four players. Whose names he didn't say, but you could work them out from the from the six uh, six players whose names he did say. The players were Lingard, Mkhitaryan, Martial, and Marcus Rashford. So the seventy six thousand pissed off people who've just seen Manchester United fail to score against West Brom at home for a forty percent win rate and settling back in kind of a good bit off the top four at this stage. And Jose Mourinho points the finger at those four guys, these guys. If you're looking for someone to blame. Just in case you didn't get it, just in case you didn't get what he was saying there, he he added, we've had matches here with Zlatan that we drew. He missed a penalty in the game to win it 2-1. That was a Bournemouth game. He missed chances like other people did too. So I cannot say now that if Zlatan and Mata played, we would win against West Brom. I cannot say that. What I can say is that Jones and Smalling, they would not play better than by Ian Rojo. Pogba and Herrera could not play better than Fellaini and Carrick. That I can say for sure. <laughs> so he can't say for sure that Zlatan would have played better uh, or Mata would have played better than Rashford, Lingard, Mkhitaryan. But he's not totally sure. Is this not just the usual Mourinho spiteful stuff? Why, why do you feel this is more un- unusual of why this is particularly remarkable? He's what? always being spiteful about somebody. 
It's his but, own players, I guess. This is his own players. You can't do this. Did you not realise that you not learned anything from last season? You can't turn around and point the finger at these guys. These are young players for the most part. Okay, there's Mkhitaryan is more experienced and his whole attitude towards him has been ambivalent at best, you know? Maybe we're beginning to see it go back a bit more to the way that it was before, you know, at the start of the season. Um, but, you know, these these players, how many times can you remember, um, you know, successful managers absolutely digging out young players because they didn't score in a game? You know what I mean? Especially guys who play in this type of position. It's, it's kind of the nature of the position. He's talking about you need to be consistent and list off his defensive midfielders and, and his defenders. You need to be consistent. You need to be consistent. All those guys have to do is get the ball and pass it to someone with more ability. You know, it's not, they don't have to do the really kind of high-end part of the game. It's easy to be consistent. It's easier to be consistent. In, in, for a winger, it's difficult. What if no one is giving you the ball? What are you going to do? He never understands this. But he's been managing for long enough that you can see, go back through his career. Look at Arjen Robin. Same thing with Arjen Robin at Chelsea. Robin scored some, was it two goals in 36 games in his third, his third season at Chelsea? Mourinho's like, no, you know, we don't, this guy hasn't got the balls, you know, send him to Raymond. Robin, one of the, we're talking about one of the great players in that position in Europe over the last 10 or 15 years. And for Mourinho, it's like, no, come on, the glass man, you know, Hazard, the player of the year, same, <clears throat> same stuff last season, you know, Mata, who now he's, now he's bigging him up. Because uh, he's he's got him again. There's so many of these players, because he he seems to just like for instance he's saying, um, and we haven't even mentioned what he said about Luke Shaw yet. Oh yeah, Jesus. But I mean, in fairness, the Luke Shaw thing has been has been in the pipeline, you know, for a long time. It doesn't come as much of a surprise. But you know, he's like, it's not today. It's every day. It's not today they miss chances. It's every day they miss chances. It's every day. I just keep doing what I'm doing. I try. I give chances. I give chances. I try. Play again. Play again. Come on. Keep going. You have talent. They know they have talent. Okay, let's go. Let's try. Let's have one more, one more opportunity. No pressure. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. There is nothing else we can do. Do you not find that incredible? This, he's, what, how is this supposed to... Help the these troops. players to develop. How is this supposed to make them feel as though they can play without pressure? You know, if you're Anthony Marshall and you see that, and it's like Jose Mourinho, out of the goodness of his heart, is persevering with you. A charity case at best. That could be worse. You could be Luke Shaw, who he has now said. He's absolutely nailed Luke Shaw. I mean, another... I, I kind of uh, compare the way he trains and commits the focus, the ambition. He's a long way behind. A long way behind Ashley Young, Darmian and, and Daly Blend. This, this was after someone said Shaw and he said, who? You know, okay. Well, so you're you're uh, you're bullying effectively. You know, a, a junior player in the squad. Maybe that will impress other players. Uh, maybe it will. But here here is the reason why you know you don't see great young players coming out of Jose Mourinho teams. They might they might buy a, few, a couple of experienced uh, senior players in the next transfer window. I've no doubt that that's what they'll try to do. Um, but you know. Well, beside those guys, if they don't score a goal in every game as well. I mean, it's remember when you think back to Chelsea, Torres, Etu, and he was and Ba, they were his his forwards at the time, and he talked about how they didn't have any balls. You know, they lack balls, and they, didn't they? I remember they scored a goal. One of them scored a goal, and they had this big celebration. The three of them, <laughs> like they were just, you know, holding on to each other. It's like we've all we've we three are all we've got in the world. Etu, Torres, two great players in their day but maybe a bit less so but still a decent footballer you know the disrespect <laughs> is just beyond and of course he got rid of them all brought in Diego Costa and it did work out in the short term do you want to talk a little bit about Arsenal outside of the body language um, before we talk to Tony about the Merseyside derby um, well Arsenal obviously came back I mean it's it's gone a bit JG Ballard at, at Arsenal Fan TV if you if you notice uh, there was all kinds of videos uh, not released by Arsenal Fan TV, but rather people perched just above their position on the sort of Emirates concourse. And there's this big sea of people coming out of the Emirates. And some very angry people are wading through the crowd, pointing the finger at Robbie of Arsenal Fan TV, who, who you can see in the picture, and very, you can see various other well-known characters from that channel, and shouting at them, saying, you're an embarrassment, you're an embarrassment, you're a moneymaker, you're a moneymaker. 
you're a moneymaker. <laughs> this is the ultimate sin, is it? That the Arsenal fan TV lads might be making some money. Well, Arsenal fan TV are monetizing uh, anger, hatred. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're monetizing all the worst, the most base elements of the human spirit, uh, whipping it up. Yeah, th- you know, throwing it into the cauldron, wh- whipping up a potent witch's brew, and <laughs> releasing it on the internet to make everyone even more angry, <laughs> and then, uh, and then. Uh, in the popular imagination, walking away with almost as much money as like Ozil or Sanchez. I was going to say Wenger. Even, even, <laughs> even, even more money. Wenger. Like uh, DT, I saw did an April Fool's video in which he said, you may have noticed uh, that I'm doing a lot more of the interviews and stuff recently. That's because Robbie has, uh, has left Arsenal Fan TV. His missus has got a new kitchen. Uh, she's got the new kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, and now he is off to Dortmund Fan TV. And now my missus needs a new kitchen. And so on and so forth. And uh, everyone was like, okay, this yeah, April Fool, I guess. Uh, this is the point at which we laugh. But Robbie was, he, obviously, he would never he would never go to Dortmund. Uh, uh, but but there are those who resent. And there was videos of you know fans fighting each other and all this. But well, meanwhile, on the pitch, Arsenal were showing a bit of fight. I thought City were quite poor. I keep expecting more from City, but I think that the reason that it was when Gabriel Jesus was in their team, I thought, wow, these actually look really good now. But obviously, he's been out for a while. Sterling came off at halftime yesterday, and that was an, that was a substitution that hurt them. I mean, Pep had a few interesting things to say, kind of uh, around this game, because the whole thing is happening at the moment where uh, certain English politicians and uh, and sort of. Uh, right-wing journalists are threatening war against Spain. Oh, yeah. They're going to unleash hell against the Spanish. They, we can still singe the king of Spain's beard. Uh, they say they're going to... Uh, they, they were, they, they, I've been reading articles about how much militarily stronger Britain is than Spain. Yeah, I read one of those pieces that it... It was, it was literally, I was reading it and it was honestly like the conversation you have when you're 10 years of age. Who, who would win <laughs> who in a would fight win between? A bear and a shark. And this is, this is these full <laughs> articles about this kind of stuff. Oh, while we're not as, it's being compared to the Falklands War <laughs> in this sort of righteous way. We were right in the Falklands and we're going to be right oh, in, in Gibraltar. Uh, and sure, we're much weaker militarily than we were, or certainly our Navy's a lot weaker than it was in the Falklands days. But, you know, we've still got a few gunships knocking around the place. We've got other ways of getting the job done against Spain. <laughs> Seven nuclear attack submarines. All this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, what are, this, what, are, what are the Spanish got? Um, so anyway, they're going to... They, we could be on the brink of war. Uh, Pep was asked about Brexit. Uh, it seems like most of the managers, especially the foreign managers, don't really understand why... Uh, this has happened? This, <laughs> what is going on? Uh Pep says, I think even the English people are still waiting to see what's going to happen with Brexit. For the moment, all the processes will be launched, which will be in one or two years. They will see what happens. I don't know how it's going to end, but if they don't want to have people from abroad, we will leave. If they don't want to have more people, they won't do that. And if they want to do that, they have to decide. But this is an interesting thing, because Pep has got a slightly different view on Brexit than maybe a lot of, uh, a lot of other people, because he is from Catalonia, not Spain. Catalonia. And he says, what I admire most with the English culture, so congratulations, is that you are able to vote. You decide, you decide. Democracy is like that. Work and the rules have to be the same for everybody. Uh, I mean, because they, they're talking about, well, football looks for a Brexit exemption. You know, all this EU, you know, EU players are, are, are suddenly just foreigners. You know, is there going to be a, a rule so that there isn't all this red tape and work permit stuff stopping Premier League clubs from signing, you know, loads of foreign players. And Pep is saying, well, why should we be a special case when you have lawyers or architects who are not able to work with football players? Can you? Know, but the main thing he's getting at there is that he quite likes the idea of referendums on, on independence. I mean, more power to Scotland as far as Pep is concerned, because this is the thing that in Catalonia they've been looking for for a long time. They quite like to have a little indie ref of their own. And uh, he's not able to separate his views on Brexit from... Uh, from his views on that. There you have it for Monday's report on sport. What you? What are you saying? You just a phony man. This is just for I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. Supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My heart is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother, I am bad, and they know I'm bad. <laughs> I'll never do that. There were two bad.
dead people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. All right, let's get stuck into the Merseyside Derby. Well, there was, there was plenty of getting uh, people getting stuck into each other during the Merseyside Derby. We might get to the violent aspects of that in just a second with Tony Barr. But I do want to ask you, first of all, Tony, about Everton's manager, um, controversy courting manager these days, Ronald Koeman. He had a go at an unnamed Liverpool coach in his post-match interviews for essentially moaning about how many red cards there should have been. This is on the back of his <laughs> war of words with uh, our own manager, Martin O'Neill. Is Ronald Koeman a difficult man? He probably is a difficult man. I think that, that that was probably established during his playing career and and his his time as a manager. He's, he's certainly not straightforward to deal with for anyone. Uh, I think that's one of his strengths as a manager. But I don't think it worked for him at the weekend. I, th- I think he overplayed his hand on, on Martin O'Neill. I, I, I think a lot of the points he made were good. Uh, the, the James McCarthy situation is complex on a number of levels, and, and what should always be remembered is McCarthy, somebody who, who turned his back on Scotland because he wanted to play for Ireland. So this isn't a player who's going to miss games willingly. He's not going to sit there if he's not 100% fit and say, you know what, I've looked with someone else today. He's going to say, give me a chance, I want to play. And what what Kuma said in that respect was spot on. The player needs to take responsibility, but in the absence of that, the manager has to show duty of care. And I always think that that's right. It's that that That's logical. But then obviously when Martin O'Neill fires back, you think, well, you've had your say now, just leave it be. It's the day before a massive game. You don't want to keep this going. And obviously at 9 o'clock, whatever it was, on Friday night, about 15 hours before the Mayside derby kicks off, Koeman's on Twitter having a little go back. And even post-match, he was, he was speaking with pride that he'd, he'd had the upper hand in that battle, uh, which I don't know. It, it, it just it felt wrong. It felt wrong given what had just happened to Everton on the pitch. Yeah. So I did think he, he'd overplayed that. But he is. He's, but there's also a sense, and we've sort of accept this, he's playing for the gallery. He's not a manager who is... Things have gone okay up to a point at Everton, but that big breakthrough that everyone's still waiting for, that sign that they're ready to challenge the top four is yet to arrive. And I think while that goes on, there's going to be a little bit of this way where Koeman has to buy himself some, some time by playing for the gallery, and I think that's what he did over McCarthy. Well, I mean, it's, it struck me in this case that he actually had a fairly reasonable case. I mean, did, yeah. McCarthy wasn't fit to play. He, he was injured... Or, you know, he, he felt an injury in the warm-up for the game. So clearly he was not in a condition to play. And when Martin O'Neill comes out of the line, like, from the master tactician of the playing game, that's just not the way managers speak to each other, usually. That was an extraordinarily sarcastic tone for O'Neill to take, I thought. No, it was, especially considering what had happened to another Everton player in, on international duty uh, during that week. And none of that, no blame was attached to Martin O'Neill on that. But you, ju- you just think... He put a little phone call into Cumin, and to be fair, their relationship has absolutely broken down. And I know there's been the, the blade, the fingers are being pointed in various directions for that, but they, they haven't been on speaking terms for some time. But I just thought on on that basis, you, you've had a player break down during the warm up, uh, you've had a player break his leg during the game. It's one of those situations where it's probably in your best interest, not just in terms of doing the right thing, but in terms of ongoing relationship with clubs, to publicly say. Listen, I'm, I'm gutted about this. I'm gutted that both these players play for your club. And I think that a little bit of, of that, a little bit of sympathy and empathy from one manager to another would have went a long way. Uh, and when that wasn't forthcoming, obviously, Koeman goes on the war foot. And I, I, I think O'Neill is on the wrong on McCarthy. I think he's, he's got that wrong. But I think there are residual issues that are bigger than that. I think James McCarthy's fitness is a problem that is much bigger than the managers themselves. And, and they predate both managers as well. Yeah, and this, this is where this is where you might you might start to think, you know, there's two managers here, both having a pop at each other about who loves James McCarthy more. <laughs> and actually, neither of them are thinking of him at all. What he needs is a break from football because he keeps getting these muscle injuries. There's been 10 in the last 18 months. He can't shake the problem off. He needs a break, and neither of them are prepared to give him a break. Well, I'm, I'm wondering whether it's... It, it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree on the break, but I'm wondering exactly what the cause is because there's, there's something that Debato Martin has said about two years ago, and it was something I thought was really significant. But it's one of those things that get, that gets overlooked. He he said that they sorted out James McCarthy's injury problems, and they got to the bottom of it. And the problem was caused by his diet, and it's one of those things that make you go, his diet in modern football, 
you're saying that a player's diet is making him physically unable to play football. And that, that would, as I say, that was overlooked a lot of the time. And I was, is James McCarthy looking after himself as he should? Are the managers firing off each other when they should really be looking at him? I don't know. It's, maybe that's totally unfair, but it just seems that he's not ready to play football for whatever reason, be it for Everton or for the Republic of Ireland. And the longer those two focus on each other, the less likely it is, as you point out, that they will sort out his problems. You need a holistic approach. You need club and country, you need the two medical teams to get together to collect all their medical information, all their reports, all the times that he's broken down, share that information and try and come to conclusions about when he should and shouldn't play and when it's right to pull him off the fire line. And I think a very basic start would be if he turns up an injury and Everton's medical staff and the Republic of Ireland staff says it's a risk to play and he shouldn't play. Ross Barkley was out there playing and making his presence felt as the euphemism goes. Tony, I don't know what you think of where Barkley's at in his career. Uh, I do have a theory, uh, if you'd li- if you'd allow me. <laughs> well, he's a brilliant player. I, I, I thought when Barkley first... Obviously, a lot of these English players get hyped up beyond... Um, maybe what they should be, but he was one of the ones I thought this guy really is going to be the business and can't help driving and forward all those sort of things. And it's not like he, he's been a disaster by any manner of means, but it strikes me that he hasn't quite hit the heights. Like there was a moment during the game yesterday where Jamie Redknapp in commentary, uh, or at the weekend I should say, Jamie Redknapp in commentary said, if you compare him to Coutinho on the other side, he's just not getting to that level. He's not giving you what Coutinho gives you. And I thought, well, that's stating the bleeding obvious. Uh, I mean, Coutinho is a completely different level uh, in, in terms of what he can do on the field. And Barkley is, strikes me that maybe he's getting a bit fr- frustrated by his failure to be as brilliant as he thinks he can be and is now channeling that frustration into a new sort of a hard, man, man, hard man mentality. Yeah, I think there is elements of that. I'm not sure he wants to be a hard man. I don't think that's him in, in any way. Uh, I think there are a lot of things going on. I think he's now 23. If, I'm pretty sure he's 23. I think he's... Despite being that age, he's never had a manager yet who completely trusts him for club or country. With England, that's self-explanatory. That absolutely is. It's clear for all to see. Uh, from Hodgson, who spoke openly about uh, his, his inability to keep the ball in certain situations, to Southgate, who, who won't give many minutes on the pitch, and in between, Allardyce, who dropped him from the squad. Uh, and everything, David Moyes, who's never quite sure. Uh, you've had Koeman, who's treating him but it, it's it's tough love. I mean, it, and he's he's left him off the side. He's taken him off early. He's he's spoken disparagingly about him. And in between, even the Beto Martinez, although he spoke effusively about him, his actions didn't always match up to his to his words on that front. So he's got all that going on. He's also in a team where, if you look at the Everton team on Saturday, he's the local lad. He's the one that is under most pressure to perform. He's the one that every Everton supporter is looking to go on. You, you be our derby match winner. You be the one who makes this game ours. And yet. There are only two players on that pitch in blue who can affect the game in that way, and that's him and Lukaku. So the minute that Liverpool realise that, it becomes a very, very simple tactical approach for, for Jürgen Klopp, who simply put Lucas Lever in front of the back four to screen them, which denied the space for, for, for those two Everton threats, and those two Everton threats you would just diminished. And I think all of those things are coalescing, coalescing the frustration of themselves, the frustration that managers not backing them, the frustration at the lack of quality around them. He's now... He's now He'll be 12 months. Uh, he'll have 12 months left in his contract pretty soon. And he's obviously looking at that and he's wondering, is this still the best place for me? For me, if it was the best place and he knew that already, he was already signed. Mm-hmm. But he's not there yet. And I, th- I think Everton and, and Ross are in a strange place at the minute. I think Coombe would prefer a different type of number 10. I think he'd prefer a more cerebral type, uh, somebody who will help control the game in those areas. Uh, I, think he, I think he would prefer a Coutinho, to be honest with you. But that, while he's got Ross, he has to play him. Uh, and to be fair, I think he's played well. I think he's played well since the turn of the year. But again, it's about that. And it's an Everton problem. It's not just a Ross Barkley problem. It's impacting on superior opponents. And he's not doing anywhere near enough. And when he doesn't do that, he can get drawn into making the kind of tackles, which, I mean, I'll be honest, he's not even very good at them. No, he's not. He's no, not. The he's not he, they're so blatant and so bad that you, you couldn't you couldn't claim that there's any great that there's some players who launch into these type of tackles and you think well he's having an impact on the player he's changing the course of the game he's doing this the referee can't see what he's done but he's so blatant so bad at it the execution it, it's one of those that he needs to lose very very quickly because it is undermining him you mentioned Lukaku there Tony I see the Liverpool echo to this morning has uh, ambition is a two way street sort of reminding Romelu Lukaku who you know seems to have his um 
sight set on uh, on a move to maybe a Champions League club that um, playing terribly in all the big games isn't really doesn't really suggest he's actually cut out for that level. There have been a few things about Lukaku recently. Who, who is he? Is the top scorer in the league, isn't he? Like, I mean, he's yeah, he's, he is, yeah. yeah. So he's scoring all these goals. Um, I, I saw Carragher. Carrier was criticising, saying that's all he does, he just scores goals. There was, a, there was a piece also by Jonathan Wilson the other day which noted that he, <laughs> Lukaku, I don't know where he got the, the data, but apparently Lukaku was running nearly three kilometres less per game than Roberto Firmino, which is a huge difference. I mean, it's absolutely gigantic yeah. difference. When you watch Lukaku play, do you think this man is a, is a giant, he's going to be a legend of the game, or do you wonder why he you know, doesn't seem to move around a whole lot? I think the way Firmino plays, if you look at the two attacks on Saturday and what was crucial about Liverpool, and Firmino doesn't have a massive effect on any of the goals, but he has a fundamental impact in other ways. He's the player who moves defenders around for Liverpool. He does that all day long. He creates space. So when Mane goes from right to central, Firmino's making a run with space for him to dart into. And that is something that he does over and over again. He runs selflessly. So he's an extreme. He's an absolute extreme. And he doesn't score that many goals. Lukaku is the exact opposite. And what I would say is that he's an Everton team which isn't a brilliant Everton team by any means. It's one that has been improving. But the weight of goals he scores is, is remarkable in that side. And how much Everton rely on him. Now, I see, I see like everyone else when he doesn't work. And I thought what he did on Saturday with the old sick of stand, stand close to whoever's marking him and just don't run. Because it look, just looks like you're being marked. But he's not running Lovren round. Lovren gets to stay where he is. But he's ne- he was never a target to hit. But I absolutely understand that with him. I've got sympathy with him. Because the minute Everton set that team up on Saturday, I think everyone knew that their three at the back would become five because they had no one to bring the ball out. They basically played Williams, Jagielka, Pennington, none of them's going to carry the ball to halfway line. But one of the full-backs, Holgate, also plays centre-back. He's not going to be doing much overlapping. So Everton were going to be over the overrun in midfield and they're going to be forced back. And that was going to mean that it was going to be long diagonals after long diagonal. And that was how the, game, the, the kick-off, the first kick-off, the ball went back to the, the centre-circle and got launched in a diagonal in Lukaku's direction. That was two seconds into the game. And he knew then, well, he knew before, and but this was it. This was what his game was going to be. And that was what his game was. The derby when Jagielka scored, the last minute was a brilliant, brilliant goal. He spent the game, uh, Lukaku, chasing long diagonals, winning knock-ons and running after his own, his own headers. And I, I think you've got to take that into account. I don't think he's worked as hard, anywhere near as hard as he should do on Saturday. But part of me thinks, it was similar to Fernando Torres when Roy Hodgson was at Liverpool, there is just a frustration in that. You're a top centre forward, a top goal scorer, and you're using me like John Fashion in 1987. <laughs> and I, I, I do have sympathy with him at that point. And, and, and that isn't to say he shouldn't run because he should, but I think Everton, Everton should recognise the player that he is, the ability that he's got, and do more to get the best out of him. And on Saturday, he didn't do that. Will he maybe be a bit more motivated to run against the manager who discarded <laughs> him and said he couldn't cut it at Chelsea that Everton's next game is against Manchester United? Well, that's an interesting one because, I mean, there was comments come out of Belgium last week where he, well, a couple of weeks back where he said that uh, maybe Mourinho will think differently of him now, but maybe Mourinho was right to let him go when he did. I'm not so, so sure that's true because whatever the shortcomings, I still think there's a lot of talent there. Uh, but the fact that he's making those kind of overtures interesting in itself, particularly as it seems that United are now struggling to get top four. If, if Lukaku was to leave Everton, having said he has to play Champions League football and join a club that isn't in the Champions League for a manager who decided he wasn't good enough. That would be a bit of a strange move, but football's being football. Don't do out him in playing out this game against United. <laughs> Tony Barrett, football writer at Joe. Thanks so much. Cheers, Jens. Good speech, yet. I think we can say that Tony at least took my Barkley, my Ross Barkley theory on its merits again. I think so. It's good to hear. I think he agreed with parts. I liked that. I thought it was a well-developed psychological theory you know frustrated by you know the man the his failure to be the man he thinks he ought to be he's he's made himself a monster <laughs> no i like it certainly in the process of doing so uh, tony said there a couple of times i think twice he used the phrase playing to the gallery there from ronald Koeman in regards to his spat with martin o'neill i don't know yeah as maybe this there's, there's an element i do think he feels 
the, both of these guys think that they're 100% in the right, as is the case with most arguments, <laughs> mm. or certainly a lot of them. So I, I would imagine, and look, of course, he's going to be furious that McCarthy arrives back injured again. This one in particular, because, you know, this time he hadn't, didn't even make it out onto the field. Mm. And yet, well, he did actually make it out onto the field, or at least he made it as far as the warm-up area. And it just almost it seemed so inevitable that this was going to happen, mm. that there was going to be another injury. Then it ha- so when you're ready to be angry about something, I'm sure we've been in this situation in our lives at some point, you know something's about to happen. You feel, oh, this is going, I'm going to go mad when this ha-, And yeah, then it happens. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> you go do Oh, it. yes. Yeah. Oh, righteous rage, yeah. righteous anger. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that Koeman has a point. Uh, I, don't, I don't really understand what he gains from this from publicly attacking O'Neill and I'm not surprised that once he does that that O'Neill will keep coming back at him every time it is in O'Neill's nature to do that so I hope that they both stop now because it's just embarrassing for them and bad for um, the player who is the one they're supposed, they supposedly care about Alright let's talk a little bit more about the goings on at Sunderland where David Moyes has got himself into a fair bit of bother and this is uh, on the field it's gone awfully as well there's another defeat a 1-0 defeat to Watford they're bottom of the table they're probably going to get they're probably going to get uh, relegated at this point David Priest is a former goalkeeper he's now Cosmos with the Sunderland Echo David thanks very much for coming on the podcast first of all yeah no problem uh, this latest uh, this, this issue around David Moyes I don't know what you make of what's happened here Does it t- is it as simple as maybe telling us that David Moyes should just try to t- tell less jokes or is it more serious than that is it part of an atmosphere that <laughs> discourages women do you think yeah well do you know what is it um, I'm just going to fall short of probably say he's not that type of manager but I mean it's um, yeah it's it's just it is a bizarre situation and, and, and regardless of the uh, you know whether it was a, a female or a, a male uh, interviewer I think uh, it's just the badly advised comments and, and, and it obviously does make it worse that it's, uh, it's to a female reporter as well journalist and I think that uh, he's come out and he's apologised yeah but I mean uh, the damage has been done really um, re- um, whatever happens from now on it's just uh, it's just another case of uh, things getting you know from Sam Allardyce leaving the club uh, to take the England job things have just got worse and gradually worse and this is just <laughs> this just seems to be put the, the cherry on the cake really what was the reaction when you saw it, David? I mean, were you were you kind of oh, you know, oh, Moisey kind of clutching your head, or is this like? Uh, do you think it actually is part of um, you know that, that comments like this, regardless of the intention behind them, actually do make it quite difficult for women to work in what is really still a totally male-dominated uh, environment of the press room. Listen, it's it's uh, it's indefensible. You know, it's it's not even something that should be joked about. So, uh, so I don't think it matters whether their intent was there or the, you know, whether it was supposed to be humorous or not. I don't think anybody would really find it very funny, and it's um, it's difficult to see what's, you know. I think the club have come out and said that they, you know, David's apologised and it possibly won't get taken any further, but. I said it's indefensible, really, and I think you're right. It doesn't help. You know, we're we're, we're still fighting uh, these issues uh, on and off the pitch, and um, certainly something as as high profile. This is just it really highlights the the, the work that's still to be done, especially when it comes to this sexism in uh, in football. Yeah, I mean, you can you can sort of see. I mean, Sunderland have have so far said, look, the matter's been resolved. Uh, you know, Moyes has apologised to Vicky Sparks. Uh, and 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 I think they'd very much like for it to go away at the moment. The, the difficulty that they have is really that there there have been a couple of incidents in the in the past. I mean, most recently the whole situation with Adam Johnson, where Sunderland sort of didn't do anything for a long time, and it, that ended up with the chief executive leaving. And then there was um, the the situation before that, where they employed Paolo Di Canio, uh, despite the fact that he was a fascist, which again, which again was a difficult. PR situation for the club. So it's kind of, does that, you think, make it a more complicated situation for Sunderland than it otherwise would be? Well, I mean, those situations certainly won't, won't help. And I think it's um, you, you've probably got to take each situation on its own merits, really. I mean, like, you, you're right, the, the the whole situation with Adam Johnson left a, a real bad taste in my mouth as, as well because, I mean, especially when he was when he was allowed to, to continue to, to, to be in around the first team squad, he was, you know, he's been applauded by fans uh, 
as he warmed up on the pitch. Um, and I just couldn't get my head around that. I could not get my head around it. And I think, okay, and I know we, we, it's it's innocent until proven guilty. And and but the, the, the club must have known what was you know the, the the chance of what what might happen to Adam Johnson, and must have known they know knew the facts. So that was badly handled, of course it was. And I think um, probably looking back there, they, they probably wished they'd uh, handled it a little differently. And, and this is the case. It's, it's not just it's not just about this issue, though. It's not about this just this one incident. You know, there's a, there's a wider issue that needs uh, that needs to be addressed in football. And and I think that you know if the the club and uh, other authorities want to make a, a bigger stand, then they have to. Uh, they, they can't just be seen to just dismiss it and just want to brush it under the carpet and get on with it. It, it has to be. Uh, it has to be fully addressed. They probably will get relegated this year, being realistic about it, David. But you wrote a very interesting piece recently, and you said it, it, Sunderland. I guess so. This is before we get to your piece. Um, in my own words, Sunderland are a team and a group of supporters who are used to getting relegated and getting promoted, and generally they they stay loyal and they have some great fans. But you say at this moment in time, survival or relegation isn't even the real issue in the minds of the fans. I speak to apathy is a threat that the club or the city can ill afford, and without the anchor of identity and a clear vision from within the club, the threat is real. Could you just expand a little? bit on what you mean by the the apathy that is threatening to envelop them well i think it's because it, it, i've been been able to spend a especially over the last six months here i've spent a lot more time uh back in my hometown than, than i have done sort of the past 20 25 years because of obviously my playing career but you, you go back and when i speak to friends and i speak to, to fans you know it's kind of there's just an acceptance now that that's we've rode our luck far too long now and for the for the good of the club, um, there has to be a, a restructuring and there has to be a, a, a just a clear vision. I mean, we that was the disappointing thing about uh, Sam Allardyce leaving because it was finally just found like we we'd got a, a manager who was a perfect fit for the for the identity of the club. Um, you know, you look at the city now; it's it, it's lost its all all its its major industries. Um, there's you know, you take Nissan out of Sunderland, and there's not a great deal left. I mean, it's a it's a great city with great people, but it needs more than a lot of football clubs. It needs uh, more than more cities. It needs its football club, and it needs its football to have a connection with the fans as well. And if if that's lost, uh, which like I said, if something's not done to it to address that, the 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 potential apathy and the and people walking away because they're just fed up with it. The whole, the whole city. Never mind the football club. The whole city can't afford that because it, it like I said, it's desperately needs its football club. Yeah, pretty tough going there at the moment. Listen, David, great to have you on the show. Thanks a million. Yeah, thanks a lot. Cheers. He's just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player, a baby. Coach. And we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call him a player a baby. That relegation fight is pretty interesting. It has been all season, albeit it's in danger of one or two teams maybe getting sunk early. My Sunderland are on 20 points. They're eight points away from the f- their bottom and they're eight points away from Swansea who are in 17th. Yeah. So they've got a lot of work to do and that's assuming that the other teams in the way... Sunderland are gone. Yeah, so Sunderland are gone, but I'm interested in Crystal Palace only because when we interviewed Damien Delaney a few weeks back in London, mm. it was one of those pieces w- after which you immediately say, I- I'm going to root for Damien Delaney. I-, I really I want Crystal Palace to stay up now. I know he's been in and out of the team a little bit. He didn't start against Chelsea, but he came on when was it Scott Dan went off injured. Yeah, he is. I mean, Scott Dan himself had come on at half time and then 
went off 15 minutes later with an injury. Yeah. So Delaney was like the second substitute yeah. uh, in that position. But got in there and threw his body in the way. It was kind of a perfect game for a centre-half to come into, I would say. It's, yeah. it's almost like a striker coming in when you need a goal and you, you, and you know you're going to be on the attack. <laughs> David Delaney went in going, I know I can make an impact here. And he did very well. They all did very well. Like They looked in serious bother. Even by the time we went over to London, they had won the previous two games. But before that... Allardyce's effect had been, you know, hadn't been as profound as people had thought it might be, and they had a lot of tough games coming up. We were talking off air to Delaney about this, saying, "Jesus, you've got Chelsea away, you've got another couple of tough away games," and uh, as it happens, it just shows you don't have to write off those games mm. just because you're playing the, the leading team away. Doesn't necessarily mean you can't get a point or three points out of it. Yeah. So well done, Damien Delaney and Crystal Palace is what I'm well saying. Well done, Damien Crystal Palace, and well done, Wilf Zaha and Christian Benteke as well. Uh, these are the two players who had. Um, Scored both. They both scored in Moscow for their international teams. Uh, Zaha scored a ridiculous goal for the Ivory Coast um, away to Russia, and then Benteke scored two, I think, for Belgium. So, uh, really hammering Roman Abramovich's uh, football buzz <laughs> to the extent that the Chelsea oligarch still cares about this game. Uh, Wilfred Zaha and Christian Benteke were. Uh, Proving real thorn in his side. We've got a hell of a weekend's rugby to catch up on in our second podcast today, in particular the wins for Leinster and Munster in the Champions Cup quarterfinals. Thanks very much for listening to this show. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again soon. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.